Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. One thing that often keeps us settling for less, a lot of people settling for less, is perceptions and expectations. These could be expectations placed upon you based on your race, your gender, your family name, family history, or it could be perceptions around certain specific pursuits, perceptions that will prevent you from pursuing what you really want to pursue. My guest today has some different ideas around some pursuits that have been placed at a lower level by some segments of society. And what I'm talking about here is, is the trades, the people who do the home construction, the electricity, heating and air conditioning, a lot of things that require a lot of skill, a lot of knowledge, and are also very important to our lives. But for some reason, we've placed them at a lower level. Jesse Berg is the founder of Outgrow Your Garage. Not only does she help these people form their own businesses, but is an advocate for correcting these misperceptions. Jesse, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, well, let's begin. Tell me a little bit about Outgrow Your Garage. You help people in the trades deal with the business side of their affairs, essentially. Yeah, so there's a couple things that are true about how trades businesses operate that are different from the way that a lot of other businesses operate. One is they're mobile inherently mobile, right? You want that your tradesperson to come to you and do a job on site, right? Some of that actually is changing weirdly, not weirdly, but really interestingly, where you have construction that is now happening in factories and then being carted to job sites, but you still have to do that actual building on site. So even if you have factory produced walls, which are really interesting, you still have to install the HVAC. You still have to install the plumbing. You still have to install all of the different pieces of putting the house together. And that has to happen on site. Same thing with maintenance, right? So you have these different maintenance pieces where the plumbing breaks in your house. You want somebody to come to your house to fix your plumbing. You do not want to watch a YouTube video on how to fix your own plumbing. <laughs> Some people do, but most of us yeah. like, please just come fix the plumbing. So you have this inherent mobility that's hard to plan in a business front. But then the other piece is that if you are, for example, a plumber and you are a residential repair plumber, you're spending all of your time learning about updates to the plumbing field itself. And you also need to know about every single plumbing system that happened in your area for the last hundred or so years, whenever indoor plumbing became a thing in the place that you're living and that time frame varies. You don't have the time to learn about business in the same way because your field changes all the time, right? There's new technologies. There's new advancements in landscaping and construction right now. We're seeing this huge shift out of diesel-powered and gas-powered engines into electric. So now suddenly you have to rethink as a company the entire way that your business is operating the tools of your trade that you've been using for the last 50 years. So it doesn't leave you a lot of brain power left over to learn about how business works. So Outgrow Your Garage really fills in that gap of here is how basic business concepts work. Here is how to find somebody who can help you apply that to your business. And it's presented in a way that works for people who are moving all the time. So we do online courses. They're downloadable to your phone. You can watch the videos in 10 minutes or less. You do an activity. It applies directly to your business that day. And you also are able to then have a list of here are further resources. So 
on our hiring course right now that is out. We talk about how to write a job description and how to start an employee handbook and how to figure out the difference between a W-2 and a 1099 employee. And then you also get this list of people at the end who can help you with any legal requirements in your state. You get a link to the SBA to be able to say, here is some free consulting that will help you figure out what your business specifically needs to be able to legally hire in your state. Here's how to talk to an insurance broker to figure out if you need workers' comp and unemployment insurance, all these different pieces. And so we're filling in that gap and making it approachable in a way that works for these businesses that don't fit neatly into your standard business models. And now when people pursue the trades, what percentage of them are starting their own business? What's the lay of the land? Are there a lot of companies they end up working for, or most of them end up being independent and starting their own thing? So that's a really interesting question. And so one of the other things that's true about trades is you can start a trades business without any capital. So no one really knows how many of these businesses there are out there, right? Because we all know somebody who runs a handy person business on the side. Oh, they fix cars on the side. And those are all businesses, but they might not be registered legally. The other thing that's true about trades businesses is so many of them are side hustles to start with, and then they might turn into real businesses, not real businesses, but... Well, yeah, their main hustle, they're what they primarily do. More full-time businesses, right? Full-time businesses. And so it really depends on how you count it. So there's not a good way to know exactly how many. What we do know is that of all the people in the trades, the vast majority will work for some of your larger companies. One of the things that I find really entertaining about the trades as a whole is it contains a lot of the largest companies you've never heard of. And so my background is in landscaping. And so Brightview is one of the largest landscaping companies in the country. It services most of the Western United States. And most of the Western United States has never heard of Brightview, even though they probably (laughs) do the mowing for every single corporate campus that you've seen in town. So a lot of people will work for those styles of companies because they have apprenticeship programs, they have training programs. And so they'll do that. And then what happens is as people shift, they tend to break out into smaller companies. And what is the advantage for someone, say someone's in landscaping, to work for a company versus try to strike out on their own? Is there a certain point where you outgrow it and you have more earning potential by starting your own business? Oh, you always have more earning potential starting from your own business, particularly in what is colloquially known as the unskilled trades, which is a term I hate. There is no such thing as unskilled labor, but landscaping is a great example. And house cleaning is another great example of this, where there is this idea that, oh, I can do that myself, right? I can pull my own weeds. I can mow my own lawn. I can clean my own bathrooms. Sure, we all can, but that doesn't mean you want to. And not everybody can. Some of landscaping involves shoveling several tons of rock at a time. Not everybody can shovel several tons of rock at a time. So we have this idea of that. But in that style of business, there's always more money to be made if you own your own company because you get to then set your own rates and you get to keep a larger percentage of those dollars. The other thing that's true is in some of the trades, you operate in this really cutthroat level. And so a good example of that is apartment cleanouts. If you operate a company that goes in and does commercial cleaning for apartment buildings, that's a very, very cutthroat industry, right? So 
generally people who own apartments are going to take the lowest bid on that. So your margins are already so small, which necessarily depresses the wages of anybody working for those companies. So owning the company is really the only way to make a viable income for most people. That being said, a lot of people don't want to do it. It's a lot of work, right? So there is an advantage to being an employee where you get the stability of a paycheck. You get to show up to work at the end of the day. You go home at the end of the day. You get to put it down. You don't have to spend all day at a computer. Nobody goes into trades because they want to answer emails at the end of their workday. So there's advantages and disadvantages to both sides. And in that sense, it's like starting any other business of either you want to be your own boss or you don't. And both options are fine. It's just about what works for you. Well, it reminds me of something that I that I often talk about when people are trying to figure out their paths and figure out their business, which is the idea of lifestyle versus scale. Whereas when I think of people who are doing their side hustle that they're trying to turn to their main hustle is a little bit more of a lifestyle versus a scale is the people that are trying to build something bigger and probably make larger amounts of money. Do you see that same dichotomy amongst your clients? The way that you grow a trades and service businesses is a little bit different in terms of scaling. The smaller businesses tend to stay smaller. There's not this push to scale on the same way that there is for, say, a tech company where you really want to see that exponential growth. But with the trades, every time you scale, you have to hire another person, right? There's no point at which you can shift to an automated process. Oh, yeah. So even if you migrate to something that's more efficient, say you buy yourself a nice piece of machinery it helps you do stuff a lot faster. You can dig faster. You can do all these pieces faster. You still need somebody to sit in the driver's seat of that and maneuver the machinery and make sure that you don't knock down somebody's house. So in that sense, there is a limit to how big trades companies tend to get before you start hitting that same issue of how much can you make in overhead to cover that before you start really limiting the wages of the people who are actually doing the billable hours. So the scale of that becomes really funky. The other side to that is most trades businesses tend to stay on the smaller side because you like what you do. And the more you scale a business, the less time you spend in the field doing that thing that you like. Because again, you go back to that piece of nobody goes into the trades because they want to spend all day at a computer. And so as a business owner, that's always the thing I say, you have to decide first, what is the thing that you want to do? Do you want to hire somebody to help with the billable hours? Or do you want to hire somebody to help with the back-end office work? One of those two things is almost invariably that first hire. And so that really dictates how the business owner's life operates for the next several years. But yeah, most people stay small. And then the third reason that they tend to stay small is there's a geographical limit on how big your company can get before you have to open in another location. We all like to hire local tradespeople because they understand the local area. My background was in landscaping and I would have family to say, hey, what should I plan in this area over here? I don't know. I do landscaping in Colorado and you live in Boston. I don't know anything about plants in Boston. I think one of the things a lot of people struggle with when they're starting their business, when they're scaling up is that there's business concerns, but do you like doing the physical work? And some people that start a business, they're like, okay, say I was in computer something or other, passing all that work. And now my job becomes mostly about building the business, about coordinating the job of a C-level executive, I think about. So are you saying that most people who start their own trades-related business hire off things like accounting and want to actually continue doing the landscaping, the plumbing, the heating and air conditioning, or whatever it is that they're actually were originally physically doing. 
That is true in a lot of cases. It's not true in all cases. Certainly, there are some people who really discover that they like that building that business management aspect. They like the project management. They like those C-suite style things. They like those aspects of running a business. But a lot, they like what they do. And so they want to stay in that piece. So there is a limit to how big their company will get before they have to just be out of the field. And so generally people will stay a little smaller because of that. The other thing that's true, and I think is important to differentiate, is one of the things that we do when we talk about business is we tend to conflate startup and small business as a similar term when we talk about business a lot, and they're not the same thing. So you might have a new small business that's only been in business for a couple of years, but it's never really going to be a startup because they're never going to aim for that kind of large-scale rapid growth. You're always going to grow slowly. You're always going to be kind of in a little town. And even if you eventually become one of these billion-dollar companies you've never heard of, you're still going to have these little franchise locations that know everybody in their area. You're still aiming for that small scale. Each location kind of does that. And so it's a really interesting dichotomy on that front. But when we talk about business, we think that the goal of all businesses is to scale. But a lot of us don't. You just want to have your little small business. It provides your family. It provides for your life. You provide a couple people jobs. And when we talk about job creation, those are the ones who create the most jobs. Because so you have one attention. business that's creating. Well, it's also an economy of scale, right? One business owner who is starting a new trades business who has to hire people to expand might create five to 10 new jobs in the course of two years as they grow. Whereas a larger company isn't going to be able to create jobs on that same scale. They're not going to create five to 10 new jobs per manager Oh yeah, at a large company the way that you can with small businesses. So when we really look at job creation, it's these little local businesses who are starting a new business, who are hiring two or three people per business owner, per manager effectively. And that's a huge, huge boost to local economies. And so one thing I'm wondering is that given people in the trade businesses are less likely to be scaling to the point of becoming a quote-unquote unicorn, as a lot of investors are looking for. Is it a challenge finding investors that are willing to invest in these businesses that aren't shooting for the moon, but maybe are more likely to just say double or triple in value? Oh, it's huge. Of the trades businesses that I know, Almost none of us even think about investors as an option. You look at small business loans. You look at how your bottom line operates to fund your own growth. We're not even on the radar of that type of investment. And that bears out it if you look at pitch competitions, right? When was the last time you went to a pitch competition and saw any business in the trades or services at all? We're not even in that world. So it is a really interesting way that that manages because it doesn't provide that exponential growth, but also because the way that you grow a trades business is inherently slow. And so it's not as interesting to people who are looking to make that exponential growth. But CDFIs, your community development financial institutions, do a ton of loans to small trades businesses and a ton of loans to small service-based businesses. And so these business launch programs and business accelerator programs who work primarily with underserved communities do a lot of trades business work. Because if you don't speak English as a first language, if you have any sort of criminal record, if you don't have a college degree, if you have a bunch of competing 
things on your time, right? You're a single mom or you are trying to care for an elderly family member. You're in any of those kind of caregiver roles and you're trying to work on the side, then starting your own business becomes a way to be able to create more options for yourself. Right. So the Rocky Mountain Microfinance Institute is an organization that I love. And their motto is that they are creating class mobility through entrepreneurship. And a huge percentage of their businesses are trades and services because you can start them with a really low amount of capital. You can start with a car and a mop. You can start it with a car and a shovel. You can start it with a car and a wrench. So because the buy in is so low, you can really start a trades business without a lot of outside investment. And one thing I'm also wondering is you bring up people who are just doing the side hustle, just doing that, my neighbors know I'll fix their car type of thing. What is the advantage for this group of people to take forming a business a bit more seriously and try to like learn things like marketing and payroll and things like that to scale up to where you're looking to bring them? Yeah. A lot of times it's going to be time. It's going to be energy. It's going to be a change in circumstances, right? So maybe you are running your side hustle because you need a little bit more money because the job that you have doesn't pay very well. And then as the side hustle grows, you realize that you can make more money doing your side hustle as a full-time business. And so you leave your job. Sometimes it might be that I personally am an entrepreneur in part because I had a slew of really lousy managers yep. and I just got tired of working for other people. And so that was why I ended up going into business full-time. And I went from coaching people about how to do vegetable gardens on the side to starting a full-time landscaping business. Sometimes it's that your circumstances change, right? We have just had two years of a massive pandemic and a lot of people who ran side hustles of trades or service varieties probably went to full-time business in that because those businesses had zero turnover because the trades are all essential businesses. You had to keep working. And so that was one thing we really learned in this pandemic is this idea of what is essential for our society to function and our plumbers and our HVACs and our electricians and our house cleaning companies and all of these businesses that we tend to think operate in the background became really essential. So if you ran one of those businesses on the side, the pandemic was a great time to turn it into a full-time business because you might not have been able to do that with your full-time job. Maybe you got laid off. Maybe you just didn't have as many hours. Maybe you couldn't handle working at home. Not everybody loved that work from home shift. Yep. Not everyone did. Some people got really antsy. And that's a good segue into another topic because you do talk quite frequently about how people view the trades, how people view these types of pursuits. And I'm wondering is if you've observed this changing as a result of the pandemic, when people saw what was essential, they saw what they really needed, and people kind of finding a newfound appreciation for people who do this type of work. I think we're starting to see a little bit of a shift on that, even pre-pandemic. So one of the things that's been happening for the last 30 or 40 years is we've had this push where everybody needs to go to college, right? You have to go to college, you have to get a good job. And we forgot that there were plenty of good jobs that existed (laughs) that didn't require a college degree. (laughs) And even I would argue some of the jobs that currently require a college degree, you don't need a college degree to be a graphic designer, right? There's a lot of things that happen out there. I don't think you need a college degree to be a virtual assistant or an office assistant. There's a lot of things out there that, that you don't need a college degree for, but that's beside the point. 
But we went through this period of time culturally where we said, okay, you have to go to college, you have to get a good job. And we created student loans and we created this system where people could do that relatively cheaply until it wasn't. And so now we have this kind of dual problem of because we pushed people into these college degrees and said, hey, you want to get a good job. And by good, we meant white collar. And in fun facts, I learned this week, the term white collar was coined by Upton Sinclair in the jungle. Fun fact out of the New York Times crossword puzzle. I was like, oh, that is fascinating to, to know That's the origins fact. of these terms that we just take for yeah. granted, but make no sense outside of the cultural context. Right. Like right. If someone from another era, another planet, Korea came in and heard the term white collar to be like, what does right. that mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we had this big push to go into these white collar professions. Now we have this actual shortage of people with skills. As soon as we hit the tipping point in the last five or so, five, 10 years, where the number of people who are really skilled in these professions, our master tradesmen, have started retiring. And so now there's just straight up not enough people. And so the trade schools and people who are working with teenagers and school kids who are working on figuring out what those career paths might be, there's a huge push right now to say, hey, the trades are real. And that's different even than when I was in school right? I graduated high school in 2003. And there was absolutely no idea that anybody could go into the trades. That was certainly something you did if you weren't good at school. Because that's the other thing that's true about our educational system is if you aren't good at traditional learning, where you have the ability to sit and absorb material for six or eight hours a day, you get pushed off into the trades. And that was seen as, oh, you're not capable of learning. Whereas in reality, very few of us are able to sit and listen and learn and memorize things for six to eight hours a day. But we have this idea of you're not smart if you go into the trades. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where a lot of that comes from. But now we're really realizing it's a different kind of smart, right? It's a different way that you operate. We all have these different learning styles. And so as that's become more common, where we talk about different learning styles, different strengths and different pieces, some of that is starting to unwind. And so now what we need to do is unwind it in the wider consciousness, because it's one thing to say, we need more tradespeople. And then it's a different one to say, I want to go into the trades, even though the job stability and the pay grade in a lot of the trades is better than what you would get anywhere else. You can make $150,000 a year as a plumber. I think about how sometimes getting a new HVAC repairman, for example, has been all of a sudden a pretty daunting pursuit. And probably just because exactly what you're saying, a lot of the older people who pursued that back in the 60s and 70s, back when we still respected that line of work, were starting to retire. And talk about 2003, that was like what I remember around the time when people were talking about getting rid of shop class from our education, from our high school and middle school programs, a lot of us have observed, oh my gosh, there's like a five-month wait for me to find someone to fix my furnace. And that may be a force behind changing. What I'm thinking about is the attitude of the average person, the way the average person looks at the person that does a computer office job and then looks at the person who does plumbing or landscaping or something like that. That link is not intuitive in any capacity, right? So what happens is the average homeowner who may or may not know anybody who works in the trades fields, but who might be reading about labor shortages or might be reading about those things, they kind of know that there isn't enough people. And so they get that that might be this five-month waiting period. 
but they're not recognizing that part of that is caused by this long-term decision that we made that the trades were not a place you wanted to be. So this problem of there not being enough people, it's going to get worse before it gets better because you have to wait for the catch-up, right? So you have all these people who are now pushing to put shop class back into schools to say, hey, we need to expose people to the trades. Tech schools are doing some really great work around the country in making sure that people are aware of what the career paths are. And then the industry organizations and the unions are, of course, working on this also. But it still takes time to catch up right? Where you have to fill in that gap because we have this 20 or 30 year period where the numbers of people going into these fields wasn't enough. And so we just have to wait until you can get those numbers back up. And in the meantime, we're all going to have these five month wait periods. The other piece to that is the trades have a really bad rap for communication. And so some of that is, some of it is labor. And then some of it is, if you are spending time handling clients, That's one more person in your company who isn't out there fixing things. So as a small business owner, you have this constant pull of, I have these people who are calling me and want me to do work, but also I need to be able to set up invoices. I need to be able to write my schedule. I need to be able to go and do estimates. And so you have to figure out a way to balance that time. And that's a really hard thing to juggle. And something that Aqua Your Garage works with a lot is how do we teach business owners how to do that juggling piece? How do you make those decisions? Because that style of decision is very different than how do I put a humidifier into this house and what is the wiring and what are the pieces look like and where's the best place to connect it, right? That's all stuff you can be trained in. And you can certainly be trained in business things too, but everybody has their own method of balance in terms of what works for them and their business. And so this communication piece that you just brought up, is this alongside of your desire to not work for a boss, part of your motivation for starting Outgrow Your Garage? Yeah. So my motivation for starting Outgrow Your Garage is partly because, as you mentioned, I don't want to ever have a boss again. I've also learned as an entrepreneur, I'm actually a pretty lousy employee. Like my employees are all better employees than I was. And that's fine. I don't have to be a good employee. I work for myself. I have to be a good boss now. Different skill set. But before I started Outgrow Your Garage, I started a landscaping company called Pears to Perennials. And that company started, I thought I would go into vegetable garden coaching, and I ended up running a full-service landscaping company. And it was so hard to grow that company from the early stages. Those first couple hires, figuring out how to get things off my plate, finding somebody who was able to help me understand what was going on with my finances and how my money should be allocated and all those pieces was so, so hard. And then I would have these other issues like parking, right? If you have an all-day job in an area of the city where it's two-hour parking, where do I park my vehicle to be able to have access to my tools? how do I solve those kinds of issues, right? So I would try and find these resources and I was spending all this time on the phone trying to figure out these answers to these questions. And when I talked to people who are business coaches, they'd go, oh, I don't know anything about your industry. And I would go to the Office of Economic Development and I would say, okay, I have these questions. And they go, oh, we don't know anything about your industry. We'll we'll maybe see what we can do. And so I was just getting the door shut in my face over and over and over again around, we don't know how your industry operates it's very weird. So instead of getting the, you shouldn't go into the trades from on a personal level, I was getting your business doesn't count as a business from policy people, from 
the Office of Economic Development in the city and at the state level from the SBDC, from all these different places and saying, hey, we're not really sure how this business operates. And people certainly tried. The SBDC and the SBA have amazing resources and they can hook you up with free mentors. And I love recommending them to small businesses, but you have to be really specific about what you need so they can try and find somebody who can help. Because a lot of times you get, oh, your business is too small. I only know how to deal with companies that are making a million dollars or more in revenue. And you're like, great, I make 150,000. I am a one person shop. So that experience really is the impetus for Outgrow Your Garage of how do you, as a small trades company, grow through that first stage of growth? How do you hire those first five people? How do you go from five-digit revenue to six-digit revenue or from the low six digits to the higher six digits? How do you figure out how these operations work when your operations are constantly changing, right? Landscaping is a great example of this. You have a different thing that's happening every season that gets managed a little bit differently. You don't manage your spring planting operations the same as you manage your winter snow plowing operations. Yeah, it, it changes over time. Mm-hmm. So Outgrow Your Garage is fundamentally an operations company. How do you organize your operations so that they can scale in a way that works so that as you grow, you are using that money in a way that makes sense for your business, your values, and how you want to grow? And one of the things I observe about your story is that It's a common story where someone identifies a need and turn it into a business. And what I'm wondering is, for everyone listening out there, if you have any recommendations as far as what mindset, whether it be presence, whether it's be kind of not being distracted all the time, believing in yourself or anything else, does someone need to adapt so that if someone listening doesn't necessarily have their inspiration yet, but they want to be open to whenever their experiences and their observations turn into an idea for a business that they want to build, that they can actually harness that and go through with the business that they observed is needed the same way you've observed that this was needed. So I'm going to preface this with, I am originally from Philadelphia and we are a blunt and kind of mean people. We have a pretty nasty reputation for not being kind. (laughs) Yep. You're sports fans, especially, but yeah. (laughs) Right. So the way that I talk about these things tends to be a little blunt and is a little off-putting. I think a lot about a conversation I had with the owner of Odyssey Beer Works, which is a brewery in Arvada that I frequent. And so Chris and Dina are the owners and they are really spectacular people. So when I was thinking about starting my landscaping company, I said, hey, Chris, can I pick your brain about starting a business? And he said, my advice for starting a small business is don't do it. And then he oh, went wow. on with his day. And that was our entire conversation. And I don't even think he remembers that conversation at all. <laughs> yeah. But I think about that a lot because at the time I was like, even as a person from Philly, I was like, wow, that's really blunt. And that's kind of mean. Like that was a lot. And I hadn't been expecting it, that from him because he's generally like a really jovial dude. And then I started my business and I was like, oh, this is actually awful. Everything about the process of starting a business is terrible. It's hard. You have to light your entire life on fire to do it because you have to be willing to sacrifice every single thing in your life for the sake of this business. And so one of the things I've really come out of this experience with is you don't start a business unless you don't have any other options. And you cannot have any other options for a lot of reasons, right? I didn't have any other options because I'm a really bad employee. I don't like working for other people. And so it just wasn't an option for me in terms of my ability to move through the world. I didn't want to keep changing jobs and being unhappy. So I figured out how to make that work. 
I know other people who have started businesses because they had a life situation where their schedule was really funky and they needed to make something work because it comes down to you have to be able to eat. You have to be able to have housing. You have to be able to do the things in your world. And so for some number of people, for a wide variety of reasons, entrepreneurship and business ownership is the only option they have. And so unless you exist in that world of this is my only option for whatever reason, right? Whether it's circumstantial, whether it's I have this idea and I'm so passionate about it, I can't think about anything else. Whether it's I really want to be able to have control over my freedom for X, Y, or Z reasons, and that is important enough to override every other concern in my life. If you don't have that kind of ability to compartmentalize, your business ends up failing because there are easier ways to make money. There are so many easier paths. So in order to start a business, you need the passion for the thing, whatever the thing is, whether it's your actual business or passion for not having to work for somebody else or control over your finances or control over your schedule, whatever those pieces are, you have to have that and you have to be willing to light everything else in your life on fire to be able to do it. And if you're not willing to do that, it's really hard to get through those first like two years of business. And when you say light yourself on fire or light your life on fire, what are the most common roadblocks or the most common areas where people say, okay, I have this idea. I think it's really cool. Maybe they're even passionate about it and like the idea of being their own boss, but there's something that they're not willing to light on fire. There's an aspect of their life they're not willing to let go of. What's the most common circumstance that kind of makes people hit that wall? The desire to put your business down at the end of the day. I came upon a quote recently, and I think it's originally from Nora Roberts, the romance writer. She talks about being an author and a mom and running this business and doing all of these pieces, right? And so authors are all inherently business owners, right? Writing is another great example of you don't have any other options, right? For whatever reason, you don't have any other options. That's why you're a writer, because it's the hardest path. And so she talks about how as a business owner, as a writer, as a mom, you have all these balls in the air all the time. But some of them are glass and some of them are plastic. And so you have to know what balls can you drop and it'll be okay. And what balls can you not drop? And sometimes those glass balls are going to be family balls, but sometimes they're going to be writing deadline balls. And so you have to be willing to say, sorry, kids, I can't hang out today because I have to do this business thing. This is a glass ball. I can't drop Mm, it. That makes sense. So if you want to be able to put your business down sometimes and not think about it, entrepreneurship is not for you. And you might have days where the reverse is true, right? Where your business has to wait because something in your life is a glass ball, right? Yeah. Like personal health, right? If you need to get heart surgery or something. But that first bit of time where you're really figuring out what those systems are, you really have to be able to think about that business most of the time and be able to make sacrifices in your life. So every entrepreneur has a story of friends that they lost because they didn't understand that there was this thing that was occupying most of their time. I do not have children, but I have known people to start businesses who also have had children. And they say it's a toss-up, which is harder, starting a business or having your first kid. The flip side to that is that as your business grows, that should calm down some, right? I am a firm believer that every single person in a company, once you start to figure out how your company operates, should be able to take a vacation, including the owner. Every single person, if you have a person in your company who is indispensable and your company cannot function without them, that person is burned out. Yeah. So there should be enough cross-skilling 
that every single person in the company has the ability to take a vacation or take some time off or attend to the other areas of their lives too, whether it be their health, their family, their friends, all these other things. Yeah. And I always say everybody should be able to take a vacation, but what we really mean there is everybody should be able to have an emergency. Yeah. Their other glass ball, right? If it's like both my kids are sick and everything is just kind of haywire and I just need to be here focused on this instead of work. Yeah. I am in the middle of moving across the state right now. So I have been commuting back and forth between Grand Junction and Denver for the last chunk of time and I'm under contract for this house. And so my staff knows that I have to take time off for things. There's times when I am not available because I have to be at the home inspection or I have to be talk to the mortgage lender. I have to answer the phone every time my realtor calls. And so working out these different pieces, that's an important thing in my business is that I can do that. And avoid the ski traffic driving across I-70 as much as possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we drive west on Sundays and east on Fridays. <laughs> okay, so you see the traffic going the other way. And for those that don't live in Colorado, I-70 gets really jammed up on winter weekends from people going from the Denver or Front Range cities up to the ski resorts. And it tends to be Friday, Saturday morning up there and then Sunday back. And that is a conversation we've had in my house. So I own my own business. My husband works for a startup. And so we both have these really hectic schedules where we're in this business world of trying to figure out what we need. And so one of the conversations we had with this moving process is how do we want to intentionally limit the amount of chaos? Both of our jobs involve a lot of chaos. So how do we limit that in our personal life to the greatest extent possible? And part of that decision was we're not going to leave after work to drive across the state. We're going to do it on the weekends or we're going to do it on days that we're not working. Yeah. And so regardless of what the situation is with your lives or with the patterns, the traffic patterns of the city or state you live in, you kind of have to find a way to kind of put these pieces of the puzzle together and say, how do we make sure nothing gets overwhelmed? And sometimes that means finding the most efficient timing and also respecting that not everyone desires to cram days together, eight o'clock this, nine o'clock this, 10 o'clock this, 11 o'clock this, even though I know a lot of people in the trades end up doing that with their, some of their jobs. Yeah. You have to figure out how to take time for yourself and you have to figure out how to do it. So once you finish lighting your life on fire to start this business, you have to build something new out of the ashes. And that's the part a lot of people miss. And I think it's this idea of you have to be go, 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 go all the time is something that we are really grappling with as an American culture right now. And there's a lot of pushback on that, both from business owners, but also from my husband just sent me an article the other day about CEOs who are not taking other C-suite positions because they're tired of the burnout and they want to hang out with their kids. Yeah. And that's like one of the things I've been referring to this period as the great resignation on this podcast, but I've actually kind of changed my thought on this. I'm referring to it now as the great reshuffle because that's really what it is. People aren't suddenly deciding that they don't want to do anything. People are just reevaluating what they really want. And one of the things people can reevaluate, which is what you've been saying for quite some time now, is how we feel about certain positions, how we feel about certain industries, and how we feel about this idea that we've always put things into tears. Same way you talk about the white collar jobs versus 
some people refer to as the blue collar jobs or the trades. We also have this idea that management versus being an employee has a tier as well. Whereas there's possibly another way to look at it. And what you were alluding to before is that they're just different skill sets. The person who takes the initiative, starts the business, coordinates his work is and is one skill set for people that are good with people, probably good with motivation, good with empathy, whereas people that are good with the technical work are probably better off as employees. Do you see these attitudes, that whole idea of tiering being reevaluated right now? Yes and no. I think we are pretty conditioned in this culture where everybody likes things to be in this this hierarchy. And then some people don't. And those different systems are going to work better for different people. I operate my company on a fairly flat. There's only three of us. So it is easy to have a fairly flat hierarchy. Landscaping worked better when we had a point person. So it was a little more, here's the crew, here's the crew lead. And so I think you find different things work better in different situations. And so we are starting to see that type of paradigm shift. The other thing that's true about this great resignation, as people are calling it, is it's pretty segmented. And what we're really seeing is a lot of people in what have historically been lower wage jobs and the wages have not kept up with the cost of living, particularly in areas like Denver, where the cost of living is just skyrocketing. And so you're seeing these people who are saying, I'm not willing to work 60 hours a week for $8 an hour. And there are a lot of fields where that's the expectation, right? Where, what do you mean I have to pay you an actual living wage? And you're like, no, really, I need to make a living wage. And so there is this great shuffle around that. And so part of it is that employers have to pay more. But part of it is that we have to grapple with the real cost of services. And that's something we haven't done in a long time. And so back to my earlier example of apartment flipping, right? You need somebody to come in and clean out an apartment when somebody has gotten evicted and trashed it, right? Like that's a real thing has to happen. This idea that anybody can do that and we're going to pay the least amount of dollars we can get away from to do that without regard for quality of work, we got to get over that because then what happens is as we go through these shufflings, you don't have people who are willing to do that kind of manual labor full of gross stuff and who are also getting paid $12 an hour. And in some areas of the country, $12 an hour is great. But in, in Denver, Denver not. does not qualify as living wage. And so really looking at the amount that we're willing to pay for these jobs that are necessary. And so figuring out what that really means, because that's really where you're seeing a lot of these pushes, grocery store workers and low house cleaning companies and landscaping is another example of one that the wages haven't really kept up because it's hard to get people to pay more for lawn mowing services, right? They're like, I could mow my own lawn. I don't want to pay you. You're not just paying for the hours that somebody is on site. You're paying for the hours that they take to get there. You're paying for the hours of maintenance on the machines. You're paying for somebody to answer the phone when you call it. You're paying for all these other pieces off these billable hours. And so you have to be able to pay a real wage plus that overhead in a way that you don't in certain other industries. So I think we really need to reshuffle what this idea of a living wage is. And we have this idea of, well, but do they deserve that? And like, I think we really need to divorce the concept of deserving from base level wages. And I even admit that growing up in suburbia, I always thought of these things as things that magically happen, but understanding and seeing people in a way, when you go to the grocery store, you see the fact that there are people bringing in boxes from trucks and people stocking the shelves and people 
helping you with the checkout. And then no matter what other place you go, the same thing, like that person waiting the table at the restaurant, the person mowing the lawn, those are human beings, just like any human being that you encounter at your white collar job or anywhere else. And that's not even to mention, so in recent years, we have the rise of the term pink collar jobs, right? So you have your oh, pink collar jobs, your caretaking, your house cleaning, your beauty services, hair cutters, estheticians, all of these kinds of pieces. And those are even more undervalued. And so we really need to grapple with that. And so we talk a lot about the trades, but then also those service cleaning companies like house cleaning companies were huge in the pandemic. How do you make sure that janitorial services and cleaning companies are keeping these public places safe, making sure that we have basic sanitary practices, even as we were learning that COVID wasn't sticking around on surfaces, it's airborne, but we didn't know that at the beginning. And so you have all these people who are literally shifted to the night shift so that you do not see them is how janitorial services tend to operate in commercial buildings. And so these people who are actually hidden in a lot of real ways, we have to pay those people living wages also. You can tell a lot about a person by how they treat people like cleaning staff, like waiters and waitresses and stuff like that, that there's this idea, I think it's relatively recent since the turn of the century, at least, that if someone treats these people like shit, it's probably a really poor reflection on their character. And so we're seeing, hopefully seeing that percolate a little bit more. One final thing I want to ask you, because I want to give all my listeners a chance to get a hold of you. If someone is, say, going into the trades, if someone wants to start a business, wants to learn a little bit more, if someone wants to join you on the mission of getting these people who take part in these businesses the proper respect, what would be the best way that someone would get a hold of you? Yeah. So we are online. Obviously, we have a website. It's just www.outgrowyourgarage.com. We're also on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. Um, and so any of those ways are really easy to find it. If you want to shoot us an email, we have an info at outgrowyourgarage.com. And so that's monitored by me and my operations manager. And so those are the easiest ways. There's a contact form on our website. And But yeah, check us out on online. It's the easiest way to find us. Definitely. And then any last messages for anyone that is listening out there that may be interested in pursuing a career in one of these trade services? Do it. The trades are awesome. And they get you outside, they get you moving, they do different things. And so if you are the kind of person who does not want to sit and look at a computer all day, go into the trades where you don't have to. Excellent. Great last message. A lot of great topics covered. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes. And thank you to everyone out there listening. And hopefully these discussions continue to expand your mind, open us up to all these different ideas. And I encourage you to tune back in to Actions Antidotes in future episodes where we will continue interviewing people who have pursued their passions in one capacity or another with some stories to tell about what we're observing about how the world is in transition right now. Thanks for having me. <laughs> have a good rest of your day. 